Hello and welcome. My name's Lauren Sipkis. You're listening to Black Country Podcasting, the home of the Black Country Podcast. This is actually Black Country Podcasting's second series. Series one ended around 10 years ago after about 200 shows. I had a lot of fun doing the early shows. For example, this happened in 2006, Radio 4 Saturday Live Podcast of the Week. Um, Our small journey around the cyber world of podcasting takes us this week to the black country. Uh, It's a no-gimmick kind of a cast. Um, This does what it says on the tin and it celebrates talent from the black country and is listened to by people all over the world. Country Podcasting. My name's Lauren Tipkis. You're listening to Show 69. Thank you very, very much for joining me. Where's the Black Country? Well, the Black Country is, of course, to the northwest of Birmingham. And that's Birmingham, UK, of course, not Ooh, Birmingham. Ooh, fancy Birmingham. that. Laws on Radio 4. Blimey. <laughs> Actually, I was lucky enough to get on Radio 4 another couple of times before I finished the run, and I had several shows on WM too. So it was exciting times. It was great times. Right, on with the show. Now on this show I'm going to put mainly archive material from the first series of shows. And the reason for that is that most of it has since disappeared from the internet. And I think that's a bit of a shame because there were some great performances in there. This first recording is from somebody that used to be a regular on the show. It's from Ray Jones. Sadly, Ray's no longer with us. He died a few years ago. To the best of my knowledge, Ray lived in Withamore Village, which is on the outskirts of Stourbridge. I knew Ray as a writer and a first-class storyteller. He used to come over to my little studio, Rooster Studio, here at the bottom of my garden. He'd record an hour or so's worth of material, and then over the next few weeks I'd chop it up and use it on various shows. This is Ray Jones. Percy climbs the shabby stairs, carrying a square case. At the top is a door with a sign which says, Bill Black, theatrical agent. Percy knocks timidly on the door. Come in, growls a voice from inside. Bill Black sits at his desk signing letters. He points to the chair opposite and Percy sits down, the case carefully balanced on his knees. Bill carries on signing his letters, ignoring Percy. When he has finished, he pushes the letters aside. Well, you made a pig's ear of your first gig, didn't you? What did you think you were doing, eh? Percy looks sheepish, but says nothing. Your very first gig and you make a balls up. It wasn't my fault, Mr Black. You see, everybody was there. The mayor and the lady mayoress, members of the council, producers, agents, everybody. The perfect shop window for somebody just starting out in show business. And you made a balls up of it. But you see, it wasn't my... You could have got lots of work from that gig. Summer shows, pantomimes, kids' parties, bar mitzvahs. It could have been the start of a successful career for you. And what did you do? I'm trying to explain. You see, insulted everybody, that's what you did. You called the Lady Mary's a fat, ugly bitch. And you asked the mayor why he was wearing a lavatory chain round his neck. But I didn't. I didn't. You even insulted me, called me Mr. Ten Percent of Nothing, just because it was a charity concert. And look at this, just look at this. He takes a piece of paper from his pocket and passes it to Percy. These are some of the words you used. Filth, absolute filth. I wouldn't soil my mouth by using such vile language. I've never even heard of half the words. Where on earth did you get them from? I've never used those words, Mr. Black. Never 
I'd never dream of using obscenities in my act. But you did use them, Percy. I heard you with my own ears. I couldn't believe it. That's why I wrote them down. But I've been trying to explain, Mr Black. It wasn't me. It was Igor. Igor? Who the... Who's Igor? Oh, I see. He's your dummy. He doesn't like being called a dummy, Mr Black. He says it's demeaning. He likes to be called my partner. That's another thing I want to have a word with you about. Your dummy, your partner. Other ventriloquists have a boy as their partners. Admittedly, a cheeky boy who they can swap banter with. Or an animal of some kind. A monkey or a dog. Even a blasted duck. But you have to have an ugly, sour-faced old dwarf. Yes, well, that was Mr Jacobo's idea. Mr Jacobo? Who's Mr Jacobo? He's a woodcarver. He made my dump my partner. I asked him to make me a cheeky boy, like, like those of the other vents, but he said I needed something more original. He said I'd get nowhere unless I had my own original act. Satire. That's the humour of the moment, so Mr Jacobo says. Insulting humour. But, but I don't agree with him. I like gentle humour. So I, write, I wrote a gentle script. Gentle? You call that gentle? But that's what I've been trying to tell you, Mr Black. You see, Igor wouldn't stick to the script. Even in rehearsal, he wouldn't stick to it. I threatened him. I said I'd send him to... Well, I won't say what I said, but let's get this straight. You're a ventriloquist, aren't you, Percy? Yes, I am. And you put your voice into the mouth of the dump of your partner. Yes, that's right. And so what your dump, what Igor says, is what you want him to say. No, that's what I've been trying to tell you. He won't say what I want him to say. He says all these nasty, rude things, and I can't stop him. I try, but he won't listen. And he won't accept my reprimands. Oh, for Christ's sake. Please, Mr Black, don't shout. You'll wake Igor. And if he wakes, he'll be in a terrible temper. I shan't be able to do a thing with him. You're pulling my pisser, aren't you, Percy? Please tell me you're pulling my pisser. No, I'm not pulling your... I'm not pulling your leg, Mr Black. Honestly, it's all Igor's doing. He has a mind of his own. Igor. Igor. I'm sick of hearing the name Igor. He's just a lump of painted wood, Percy, with a few gadgets inside his head to manipulate his mouth and eyes. That's all he is. He's really you. He's the nasty, aggressive side of your personality. And when you're dummy, Igor, Mr Black, please call him Igor. He doesn't like being called, all right, all right. When Igor becomes violent and threatens to go down into the audience and sort everybody out to thump them and kick them in the unmentionables, it's really you that's doing it, Percy. It's you. No, it's not, Mr Black. I assure you, it's definitely Igor. Igor? What the hell made you give him that name? I didn't. I wanted to call him Charlie. A nice, friendly name. But Mr Jacobo insisted that his name was Igor. To be honest with you, Mr Black, I think Mr Jacobo is really a witch doctor. I think he's put a spell on Igor, and that's why he's so wicked and aggressive. He's evil, Mr Black. He really is evil. 
For Christ's sake, Percy, he's just a dummy, a lump of wood, that's all he is. Don't shout, Mr Black, please, you'll wake Eagle. There is a knocking sound coming from the case on Percy's knee and the muffled voice of Igor calling, Let me out! Let me out! You've done it now, Mr Black. You've woken him up. I shan't be able to do a thing with him. Mr Black gets up and points to the door. Get out! Go on, get out! And take that horrible dummy, Igor, Mr Black. His name's Igor. And take that horrible Igor with you. As Percy gets up and goes out, the case is moving violently in his hand and the voice of Igor can be heard shouting from inside, Let me out, you swine! Let me out! Mr Black mops his face with a handkerchief. Ventriloquists, schizo-bloody-phrenics, a lot of them. He sits down at his desk and the muffled voice of Igor can be heard calling out obscenities as it disappears into the distance. Yes, that's wonderful. I love that. Ray Jones. Sound recording and local history sometimes come together. And if the Black Country podcast gathers a bit of support, then I might make that link with local history the central theme of the new series of podcasts. Oral history, social history, that sort of thing. I love it when the two things come together, and here's an example of that. A few years ago, when I was working with Billy Spikemon, we were employed by the Public Arts Centre in West Bromwich to produce an exhibition, the theme of which would be dance halls and cinemas of the black country. Obviously, part of that was contacting as many people as we could, recording an interview with them, and giving their memories of the cinemas and dance halls. What I'm going to play for you now is some of the recordings we made. Obviously, I catalogued the name and details of these people, but I won't be giving that detail today. I don't think that's necessary. It's actually a distraction. This isn't an academic exercise. That's not really the idea. You're listening to people from the black country talking about the black country. And when we recorded them, we tried to get them as relaxed as possible so they're using a natural conversational style. You be the judge. Have a listen to this. When we were children, and I used to go to the Alhambra down Groveland Road, and the manager there <laughs> used to come round with a cane. <laughs> if you was talking and interrupting the film, he just used to come up and hit you with a cane. Oh, it was funny. It was a penny to go in on an afternoon. If you went in at night, you was there, you select and you paid about top and sore I remember one, it was something very frightening, a picture of Dorian Gray, and I went to see it and I couldn't go to sleep. I had all the household up. <laughs> Every time anybody went to sleep, I got out of bed and said, come on, wake up, I'm ever so frightened. <laughs> and Dad says, that's the last time you go to pictures. <laughs> but it wasn't. Thank you, Mr. Silent Chair. Because I remember the music crashing as Dorian Gray died. The music crashed. If there was any music needed, they'd pay the music to accompany the film. As for the cinemas, the three cinemas in Albury was the uh, Palace in Freeth Street, the Savoy in Birmingham Road, which was the bug house, and the Regent in Langley. If there was a very good film on and you could afford it, 
you went to the Wally Odeon or the Dudley Odeon. They were the plush cinemas, mm. but you couldn't afford to go there very often. I think the minimum was sixpence. But remember, as a bloke, my wager was nine and threepence a week. We used to walk to Dudley Odeon. And we hadn't got enough money to go in the one night. We had to walk back. They sold all the sixpenny seats and all that was left was one and sixpence, which was upstairs, right on the front of the balcony, best seats in the house. No way could we afford that. So we walked all the way back again. But stereotype the films were, you know. John Wayne, he was just coming into his own in the 40s with his first film, The Stagecoach. Victor McLaglen was another one. Frank Sinatra was just coming up then with his Bobby Soxers. There was two sittings. The first one started about six o'clock and the second sitting would be quarter past eight. There was the main film and what they called a B-movie, which was nowhere near so good. You only went really for the main cinema. I mean, you can tell how popular it was. I used to meet inside, because she insisted on paying for herself. The one time <laughs> she got in, when you come to me to pay them, sorry, it's four. <laughs> it's true, this is. I waited outside for two hours while the first sitting was on. And just as I went in, I saw Mum getting up to go out. So I just sat down, got up and went out to meet her. I paid me sixpence for nothing. Mm. Hilarious, really, but that's how it was then. And then... Uh, well, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby were very popular then in the road yeah. movies. We were on holiday at Torquay when the Great Caruso came out with Mario Lanza. Everybody was rushing to see it. And we got in the queue and we got in. We were right at the front, on the balcony, but right in front of us was a great big concrete pillar. So I sent for the manager. He said, what's the matter? I said, I, said, I haven't paid to sit with a pillar in front of me. Oh, I'm sorry about that. He said, and got us the two best seats on the front row. And another session, Mum fainted in the cinema. Somebody said, sit here. It didn't make any difference. It was still spark out. I picked her up, not realising that as I was carrying her out along the row, her feet were banging on the edge of the row in front. <laughs> It's true, it's the gospel truth. That was at the Dudley Odeon. I remember going with a group of friends to see South Pacific at the Regent in Langley. I was only about seven and all the others were about 12 to 14. This would be about 1962, I suppose, and the Regent was only down the bottom of the road, so it was really local. To see the film on such a big screen and in colour was amazing because we'd only got a small black and white TV at home. But the film went on so long that Mum and Dad were really worried where I was, so they had to come into the pictures and fetch me out of the cinema. I went loads of times after that with my family. I used to love the carry-on films, and I remember going to the Asaldo at Quinton with my friend Pat at the time, and we went to see Carry On Up the Khyber. I suppose I've been lots of times since then. But if I had to pick a film that I've enjoyed the most over the last few years, it would probably be the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. I went to see that with my family in 2012 at the Dudley Multiplex. When I was a young lad and we lived in Cosley, I used to walk down to this picture house, which is in New Hall Street, and I modelled myself on Mr and Mrs Jones who got it when Vic MacDonald took it over. He got on a son named Bruce, and it was always nicknamed the Bruce, you see. When I left school, I started at the region Tipton, which was a 1500-seater. It was an ABC cinema before the war. Well, I was only a rewind that, wasn't I? That was 1944. What they did in those days, the chief operator would man the number one machine, that's the one on the left, and the second operator would man the two machine. The chief operator, he would be there for the 20 minutes of the first reel. Second operator, he would take the change over to the second machine. And then when the first reel came off, the chief operator just showed, I would have that off him. 
and relaunch in the re-wardrobe. It had to be a separate room because of the inflammable film, you see. Jerry Richstein, the chief operator, would then thread up on the projector the third reel, ready for changing over to that one, and so on, you see. Cinemas weren't allowed to open on Sundays in Tipton, so it was purely a six-day operation. We was there for every show. I don't remember the times we had to be there. Ten o'clock in the morning till 12 o'clock, Mondays, Thursdays and Saturdays. We had to be back in the building for 20 past one. And then every night we had to be back in the building for 10 past five. And I would light the gases, because the second lighting was gas lights. I'd take a stool out of the operating room, I'd get the taper, and I'd do all the stools in the balcony and the staircases, turn the gases on the light up. Obviously in the morning you'd be spending time cleaning the machines. Or on a Wednesday morning you'd be mending the seats. Once every so often in the winter, you'd have the lorry load of coke on, and each of you, that's the chief operator, the second and me, we'd have one and sixpence each for shoved in the coke, down the coke hole. The late 50s, I used to go to the pictures regularly with my sister at the Regent, it used to be in Crosswells Road, Langley. The one night, we went to the Regent, the place was full of teddy boys, rock around the clock was on. The atmosphere in there was absolutely terrific. The teddy boys had a bad reputation, but there was no trouble. They were just having a good time, I was dancing inside. It carried on outside after, I remember all the different colours of the drapes, you know, pink, light blue, and the teddy girls in their hula hoop skirts dancing outside, absolutely terrific. I took a part-time job working as a projectionist at the Real Cinema in Quinton to support myself while I was at university. They offered me a position as a projectionist, so I snapped that up. I was trained by Gordon Ford, the manager of Real Cinema Quinton. It was 35mm and I was possibly one of the last people to be trained on 35mm film in the area. Now, of course, everything's moved over to digital. We have the films arriving on a hard drive. All that's left for us is to ingest the films and set up a playlist, much as you would do on iTunes. The films now are set to schedule and play automatically. We used to go to the Regent Saturday afternoon. One a pine, the other would go down the side and lose the other thing. We moved up some of them when the houses come down. And we used to go to the Bruce, New Old Street, which was the Flea Pit. <laughs> I remember going to see the Jolson film and we were in the queue. And I watched the fleas jump off one another. <laughs> and they used to come and spray, yeah. <laughs> Mr Jones. <laughs> the best seats were at the back and there was all about six rounds of benches. And when they was full, you'd sit on the floor. It's when you were a child. We did have quite a lot of cinemas in Tipton. Apart from the cinema in High Street, I think I went to them all. But mainly when we were kids, we went to the Rialto or the Palace or the Gormont in Wensbury. Bank holidays, I don't know why, but bank holidays, we always went to the Tower at West Bromwich. And it was usually a Technicolor film. Betty Grable or somebody like that. I'm showing my age now, aren't I? We'd go on the bus, bank holiday Monday, because miles long, you'd go for the two o'clock one, but we wouldn't get in till probably the evening one. And I remember there used to be a little fish shop just past the tower. It was always my mother and my auntie and my cousins and my two brothers. And we used to get chips and we'd come back in the queue when we came out at night. We'd get the 74 bus back to Great Bridge. We used to have to walk from Great Bridge to Ockerill. My cousin, she's about 78 now, she always used to cry to be carried and my brother used to have to carry her on his back. My brother's dead now but when I do see my cousin I always remind and she can't remember being carried. 
We went mostly to the cinemas. They used to change, hadn't they, halfway through the week. It'd be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, then the rest of the week it was a different picture. And when I was young, there were no Sunday cinemas then. We went to chapel. <laughs> See, we were good. <laughs> hope you enjoyed listening to those recordings. They were made a few years ago, and I have to say there are a few members of my own family in there, and I'll say no more. Right, I'm going to close the show with a bit of music now. It's from someone else that's no longer with us, I'm afraid. It's from Paul Murphy. Paul died in 2016. He was a lovely man. You can find out more about him. Just Google Paul Murphy. Now, the song I'm going to play is called Tokyo. When Paul came to my studio to do a session... I told him I'd had a Black Country podcasting download from someone in Tokyo, and he told me he'd got a song of that name. He said I could use it. This is Paul Murphy, Tokyo. Beautiful song. city wakes from sleep appointments to keep this is Tokyo the salary man descending underground don't make a sound on the crowded train Sitting on a river
Murphy, Tokyo, beautiful song. That's about it for this first show in the second series of Black Country Podcasting. I hope you enjoyed the show and that you come back to join us again. If you want to get in touch with me, you can, of course, loz at lozhipkiss.com, all lowercase, L-O-Z-Z at lozhipkiss, H-I-P-K-I-S-S.com. Or you can find me on Facebook, Lawrence Hipkiss, L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E. The choice is completely yours. In the meantime, I'll leave you with the Black Country Podcasting theme tune, which is a piece of music I wrote and recorded many years ago. Just remains for me to say one thing. Keep out the arse road. Tell Ivy. Ivy.